Well, good evening, everyone. It's Sunday night, and uh, we do church Sunday night, albeit online. Tonight, we start a brand new series. We'll be in it for a little while. Soul food, things you need to know about your Bible. So we'll launch into a new one tonight, and the title for this teaching, Before Anything Else, The Battle for Absolute Truth. Before Anything Else, I'll explain that in a minute. The battle for absolute truth. The text I'm starting with, won't get into it in detail tonight, but it'll be kind of a background text tonight. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, this classic passage. Get a Bible, let's study together. Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing, I like the emphasis on joy, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Notice, commandment singular, the whole, the whole old covenant. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, much, whole bunch. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. There's a whole text. There are many of them. Uh, it's there because we need constant reminding and constant reinforcing of the power of truth, absolute truth, especially in this case, the truths that we find revealed in God's Word. And all of those verses and many others would say that knowing the truth is of great value because you can't obey the truth God's truth, you can't live by it until, first of all, you know it and are sure that it's absolutely true. Truth, of course, in a biblical sense, it will always be anemic and a bit powerless as long as it is only uh, known intellectually. Its power is released when it's practiced, lived out, obeyed. That's what Jesus said in John 8, 32. You will know the truth the truth will set you free. He didn't just mean knowing the truth in the sense of being able to quote it. That's a good start, by the way. But Jesus didn't mean just that. He meant that there was a knowledge of the truth that is freeing for people who lived it. John 13, 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So we're going to start this series looking at the truth of the Bible. Through this series, we'll cover questions like, uh, how do we know? How do we know this is really God's Word? I mean, we say it is. How do we know it's God's Word? What do we mean when we say it's inspired and inerrant? And we do say that. How do we end up with the books that are in it? Why these 66 books? 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. Why not other books like the Gospel of Thomas, 
or some of the apocryphal books? How do we know that the Bible is now a closed book or canon with no additional written revelations that are ever to be added? What about other claims to divine authority? What about the texts of other religions? I think you can see there's all sorts of questions, pretty good questions, that I think Christians need to be able to answer. And I hope as we work through this, that you'll be able to deal with those issues lovingly and clearly when people ask. But there's one question that comes first. This whole study won't be long, but this whole study is going to deal with this one issue. One issue that stands out first and foremost above all the others, and it has to do with this issue of absolute truth. Absolute knowable truth. And I mean any statements of truth, not even just biblical ones. Is there objective truth to be known beyond the realm of personal opinion? And can it be known for certain? I don't mean, I don't mean, can we know everything there is to know? I mean, obviously, when you're dealing with God or pretty much anything else, absolute total knowledge is pretty much impossible for beings who are not only fallen, like the Bible says, but finite. We, we, we just can't know all there is to know about very much. But does that mean we can't know anything for sure? Are all propositions just opinions? That's, that's what we need to nail down before we proceed any further because nobody's going to waste his or her time doing truth if there's any doubt at all that absolute truth even exists. So, three or four points that we're going to go through tonight. One. By far, the dominant mindset of our culture today is that absolute truth is an illusion, and I'm adding an, an, an arrogant one at that. So by far, what is becoming the dominant understanding of truth in our world is that we, we don't discover absolute objective truth, truth that actually exists outside of our perception of it. But we, all of us, we create our own truth inside our own value systems. And then we bring that private truth to whatever we see and read and discuss and evaluate. So you've heard it. Something is true for you. You have your truth. I have my truth. Is that the case? Rather than something that is true and it's true for everyone, even if they disagree with it. It's true for everyone, everywhere, all the time. Man, Pastor Don, that seems like an awfully involved thing. I mean, what difference does this make, these philosophical questions? Why should we bother with it? Let's just let people think whatever they want. Live and let live. Well, here's the issue. There are consequence, consequences to ideas, consequences to all ideas. 
I think we destroy our own selves when we blither around phrases like my truth and your truth. We should talk about my tastes, your tastes, my ideas, your ideas, my opinion, your opinion. That's all fine, but not my truth, your truth. We, we, we had better pray long and hard that absolute truth really exists. We had better pray long and hard that people can know absolute truth really exists. And I want to take a couple of minutes to tell you why. Way back, way back in uh, 1994, May 5th, 1994, Michael Novak gave the Templeton Prize address, Templeton Prize address, in Westminster Abbey in London. And in it, he said a lot of profound things. But the most important point for this study were his remarks in what he referred to as vulgar relativism. This is a quote that I'm going to, it's longer than I would normally read. I don't read long quotes in my teaching times, but I'm reading a bit longer one tonight. So kind of buckle up and, and try and stay focused as I read. Michael Novak's remarks. Here's what he said. Vulgar relativism, now widely ascendant, undermines the culture of liberty. If it triumphs, free institutions may not survive the next century. To obey the truth is to be free. And in certain extremities, nothing is more clear to the tormented mind, nothing more vital to the survival of self-respect, nothing so important to one's sense of remaining a worthy human being, of being no one's cog, part of no one's machine, resistor to death against the kingdom of lies. Infidelity to truth lies all human dignity. He continues. Many sophisticated people love to say they are cynical, that ours is a cynical age. These people flatter themselves. They do not believe nothing. They believe anything. Ours is no longer an age of unbelief. It has become an age of gullibility. He still continues. One principle that today's intellectuals most passionately disseminate is vulgar relativism. For them, it is certain that there is no truth, only opinion. My opinion, your opinion. Nothing is left but preference. Vulgar relativism is an invisible gas odorless, deadly, that is now polluting every free society on earth. It is a gas that attacks the central nervous system of moral striving. The most perilous threat to the free society today is, therefore, neither political nor economic. It is the poisonous, corrupting culture of relativism. One more paragraph. During the next hundred years, the question for those who love liberty is whether we can survive 
the most insidious and duplicitous attacks from within, from those who undermine the virtues of our people, doing in advance the work of the father of lies. There is no such thing as truth, they teach, even the little ones. Truth is bondage. Believe what seems right to you. There are as many truths as there are individuals. Follow your feelings. Do as you please within. Get in touch with yourself. Do what feels comfortable. Novak says this. Those who speak in this way prepare the jails of the next century. They do the work of tyrants. I mean, man. That's quite a quote. Remember where we are. I'm wanting to stress that there are consequences to the idea that absolute truth doesn't exist, that each person creates his truth or her truth for themselves. There are consequences to what Michael Novak calls vulgar relativism. And that, that's where I want to land right now, just for a few minutes. That last sentence those who speak in this way, that there's no such thing as absolute truth, those who speak in this way prepare the jails of the next century. They do the work of tyrants. I want everyone to understand that Novak isn't just being dramatic, I don't think, when he uses that word tyrant. They do the work of tyrants. Why? Why is it true that relativists Prepare the jails of the next century. Here's why. Because whenever two people disagree about anything, if it's important, they must have some absolute standard to which they can make an appeal. If, if I want to choose one way and you want to choose the opposite, if there's a real vital struggle of wills, opposite wills, and if there's no absolute truth to carry the day, then the only arbiter left is power. If truth doesn't decide, power will. There is simply no other alternative for fallen people. So what Michael Novak means is when someone tells you your religious beliefs are unacceptable because they are narrow-minded, too exclusive, and then when they come and say you must renounce them or be thrown into jails, and you object and you say, no, 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 that's not right. My beliefs are true. They're going to say your beliefs don't matter because my sword is bigger than your truth. And who's to say what you're doing is right and what I'm doing is wrong? That's why they prepare the jails for the next century. Listen, church. It is no coincidence that the last century was by far the bloodiest in human history. We had all better pray the relativists don't completely carry the day because they truly are preparing the jails of the next century. Don't, don't play truth games with your professors at university because the games 
don't end in that classroom. Pray and think and read and struggle and proclaim the centrality of the godliness of absolute truth. I, I know I took a lot of time on that point. It leads into the second point, and I'm going to go more quickly here, okay? Point number two. As the culture tilts toward relativism, the church will find absolute truth a much harder sell. The result of this is, is that the church, as the church becomes more and more aware that its audience is tilting toward relativism, then the church will be increasingly inclined to change its product to attract buyers into its message. And so in other words, in other words, relativism in truth breeds consumerism in religion. As, as the desires of self replace the unfluctuating core of revealed truth, a revealed message driven and shaped by absolute truth, then something has to give. And, and the love of external success will frequently place relativistic consumer religion in the driver's seat. That's what will happen. That's what is happening. This has always been the case. Now I want to look at John 5, 42 to 44. I want to show you from the New Testament what we've been talking about more generally. John 5, 42 to 44. Jesus is the speaker. People aren't accepting him. They aren't receiving what he says. So Jesus says, John 5, 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Look, if another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. And then Jesus asked this searching question. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So, so it's interesting. How does Jesus know these people don't have the love of God in them? That's what he says. How does he know they don't have the love of God in them. Does, does he know this because, well, he's the divine son of God and he can read their thoughts? Maybe, but I don't think that's how the text paints this picture. I don't think that's how he knows because the very next verse tells us that he knew they didn't have the love of God in them by something that he could observe and anybody else could observe. In that 43rd verse, I have come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. What's that mean? It means there are certain religious leaders, certain teachers, these people will admire and buy into. They will like what they have to say. And the reason they will embrace them is these prophets, these leaders, these teachers, they come in their own name, their own message, their own style, they can manipulate it to what the people want to hear. These hearers will welcome these teachers. 
But Jesus says he doesn't come on those terms. So in his humble, incarnate state, he doesn't come on any terms but Father God's terms. Father God's honor. Father God's words. He said God gave him the words. Father God's truth. Father God's rules. Father God's message. So there's nothing man-centered, nothing self-centered in anything that Jesus brings to the table. It's a revealed, divine, absolute message that he brings. And the people don't like that. 544 of John. How can you believe you receive glory that comes from one another? Don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. So these other leaders will tell the people what they desire. They will scratch where people itch. After all, the leader and the followers, they're all after the same thing. They're all after, in Jesus' words, the glory that comes from one another, the glory, the success, the fulfillment. They're all on that same page. And Jesus, he doesn't blend in. I want to hurry on to my last point. Point number three. The true value of God's word, God's truth, his revealed truth. The true value lies precisely in its truthfulness, not in its adaptability. Now I want to come back to that verse. I said we would, that we open this teaching with. Psalm 19, and I want to just look from the last part of verse 9 through verse 11, okay? The rules of the Lord are true. We're talking about absolute truth. The, the disease of relativism, the necessity for absolute truth. The rules of the Lord are true. There it is. Righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Here's what strikes me as interesting. Having described the law of God, he says it was perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, okay? All, all those adjectives. But it's when he describes it as being true. Right after he says it's true, that's when he says it's as precious as gold. So all the adjectives are listed. And then he says, and, and it's true. And then he just can't help but thinking, true, true. It's absolutely true. And that's, that's the preciousness. It's like gold, it's truth, makes it like gold, and it makes it sweet like honey. Gold and honey, both rooted in that adjective of the word being true. God's truth won't mix. It doesn't vary. It doesn't mix with the delusions and the deceits of our sorted fallen minds. It provides the only safe standard against fads and deceptions that, that make up, by the way, what David in Psalm 1 called the counsel of the ungodly. Precious like gold, sweet like honey. 
the truth of God's word. Precious like gold, its value, sweet, its value personally. The, the joy that it brings, the hope that it brings, the clarity that it brings. Valuable as gold, sweet as honey. And so here's the issue as we wrap up. Are, are, you, are you studying God's truth every day? Even our online sessions. Are you disciplined? Do you set other things aside? No, the Word. I need to study the Word. Do you work to hide it in your hearts? The, the psalmist's assessment is my, my love for God's Word is too slight if it comes second to my material worth. My material gain, the money I have, the car you drive, the house you live in, the cottage you have, the hobbies you have, the trips you take, all the things that money buy. If, if your love for this, in terms of time, study, effort, if my love for this is second, then my love for this is way too small, way too small. Boy, the day will come. Isn't it true, church? The day will come all too quickly when everything else gets stripped from our lives. Either through old age, sometimes, even people in our church, sometimes through sickness, one day maybe even through persecution that we can't even imagine right now. One day all we will have to rely on will be the word that we have treasured enough to hide in our hearts. It's going to get harder and harder to do this. I don't just mean time constraints, that we're all busy, we have pressure, the things that make us sort of binge on the world rather than feed on God's Word. I, but I don't just mean time constraints and busyness. I also mean the, the climate of our culture. That's what I've been talking about tonight. The climate of our culture that loves relativism. Your truth, my truth that climate will become in increasingly hostile to word-saturated disciples. That's just the way it's going to be. We will be mocked as prudes. We will be branded as intolerant. Gold never does come cheap, precious as gold. But let it all pass by. Keep the word alive in your mind. Keep it in your memory. Keep it in your heart. Obey it. Till your last breath, remember Psalm 1911, in keeping it, it's absolutely true, there's great reward. Have the eyes of faith to see it. Let's pray. Uh, quite a study. Help us to treasure truth. Help us to treasure absolute truth. By your Holy Spirit, reveal to all of us the little areas where just carelessly, carelessly, we've replaced the concept of absolute truth with the notion of personal opinion. Teach us to treasure your revealed word, to bank our lives on it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.
God bless the church. Stay in the word. It's absolutely true. Every bit of it, Old Testament and new. Join us for our prayer time.